Well, reason for the call today, John, is... Welcome to Internal Use Only. Something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Got a minute? A podcast for wholesalers. Always be closing. Always be closing. By wholesalers. Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. Okay, before we get started, I have one question. Has anyone here passed a Series 7 exam? I have a Series 7 license. Good for you. You can get out. Let's cut to the chase. Here's your host, Dan Sullivan. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Internal Use Only Podcast. We are joined by a very special guest today, Rob Shore, who is the founder of the Wholesaler Masterminds platform and has over 30 years industry experience, about 25 of which was in distribution. So if you're not familiar with the Wholesaler Masterminds platform, there are over 400 blogs, 200 videos, and really just all resources that can make a good wholesaler a great wholesaler. Rob is pretty well-known in the industry, and you likely have either seen his Sunday email or maybe engaged with some of his posts in the past. I won't detail the entire episode. Check out the show notes for the overall structure and the topics that we cover. This was super fun, and I'm just really glad that we were able to hear from Rob, someone who's put so much time and effort into creating resources for the wholesaler community. So Rob, thank you again. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I look forward to having you back on again, potentially in the future. But for now... Let's kick it over to Rob Shore. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm delighted to be here and I'm well. Thanks for asking. Great. Well, I, I'll, I'll intro with this. I wanted to say thank you not only from me, but probably on behalf of so many wholesalers that are listening for all of the resources that you've put out. One example I know when I had gotten my first external wholesaler job, I downloaded and utilized the scheduling rotator planning. So, you know, just one way that I think your resources have certainly helped me out in my career. So really happy to have you join. It's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of the ways that we've tried to build the business is give away lots of free stuff. Uh, some is paid, some is free, but um, uh, we, we just try to give as much as we can. And hopefully uh, over the years, we've had an opportunity to do some business because of it. So it's it's uh, it's our pleasure to help. A lot of people know you from the work that you've done with Wholesaler Masterminds, but I'm not sure they have as much of an insight into what your working career was like as a wholesaler and then in the financial sales and distribution industry. So why don't you provide us a quick snapshot of that? Yeah. So, um, um, you know, it, it wasn't too very long ago that I spoke to a wholesaler who told me that he was a third generation wholesaler. And I thought that that was like, pretty fascinating because I, I kind of held that experience that he was having up to my experience. And my experience was I was the accidental wholesaler. And I'll bet you there's a number of folks in the audience that could say the exact same thing. They, they, they were the accidental wholesaler. And when I say the accidental wholesaler, um, I was working as a bank rep. I was a financial advisor in a bank. And I will not ever forget the first phone call I received from a wholesaler. It was from either Diane or Susan Tellerico. Uh, 
both of which might be still in the business here all these years later. Uh, Diane and Susan Tellerico were partners in Southern California. They work for Franklin Funds. And I'll never forget, they called me up to say thanks for a trade, a U.S. government securities trade. How do I remember that? I don't know. And they wanted to come see me. And I was being the cynical person I am, completely suspicious of the call. <laughs> understand, I didn't know what a wholesaler was. I had no reason to understand what a wholesaler was. So I, I was like, well, why do you want to come see me? And, and, and did I do something wrong? And was it an inappropriate trade? And I, I was just like, really paranoid about the whole thing. The compliance flags are like running through your mind. Like, did I do something uh, exactly. wrong here? Yeah. Exactly. I thought this, this would be the shortest career of an advisor ever. And so they, they, they did come. But it wasn't until I met um, Bruce Pomper, who is uh, actually still with Kemper, I believe. Uh, pardon me, not Kemper anymore. Kemper then, uh, what would it be now? DWS, uh, I believe, would be how it's incarnated. I'm not certain. And um, when I met Bruce, uh, I started to see uh, the trappings of, of being a wholesaler. Uh, and then some of the irony of the things I learned about Bruce his wife's name's Tammy. My wife's name's Tammy. He was married on May 27th. I was married on May 27th. He lived in the exact same area that I lived in. Um, there were way too many similarities. So we became uh, some friends outside of uh, him being my wholesaler for then Kemper Funds. Um, but that's where I got to see the trappings of wholesaling. Um, and then fast forward, you know, we won't take you through the long, boring story, but, but fast forward, uh, I'm a regional manager for Home Fed Bank. May they rest in peace. Uh, and I decided, damn it, I'm going to go be a wholesaler. So instead of managing advisors, I want to be a wholesaler. I took a copy of Forbes magazine. Back in the day, Forbes magazine had a listing of mutual funds, their mut annual mutual fund edition. And in the back of the annual mutual fund edition, they actually listed all the mutual fund companies and all of their corporate addresses and all their corporate phone numbers. And I closed the door of my office and I started cold calling. And when I got to the O's, I got Oppenheimer funds and I got Marianne Bruce. And she gave me three reasons why I wasn't qualified. And she had a resume on her desk the next day. And three months later, I did my first meeting in service of Oppenheimer funds as a wholesaler. So that's how I got into this profession. Um, as I said, accidentally on purpose, maybe that's a better description. What was the hiring or recruiting process like at that time when you first put, you know, when you reached out, you, you called, you, you get your, your name on, I guess, the, the desk of this hiring manager, but was that facilitated? Did you have to travel to get to that interview? Did you, did you have to do multiple rounds? Was it anything like the hiring process today? You know, what's so interesting about that is the hiring process that I went through was the hiring process I put people through was the hiring process my managers put people through as I ascended through the corporate hierarchy. It almost became uh, um, not because not not that this set the stage for what became or what is the standard, but it, it I don't think any any much has changed. I mean, you go through the first round, maybe the first round is done by HR or maybe it's done by the hiring manager, and then they scope the resumes, and then you have a phone conversation, then you meet with them in person, and then you meet with the head of distribution, and then you go to the home office and you meet somebody from marketing, and you meet somebody from Salesforce marketing, and you meet somebody from all the other departments. And then there's the consensus discussion about what did you think about Rob? Well, I thought he was great. Well, I thought he sucked. And then they have a discussion about whether there's going to be a hire or not. That sounds pretty familiar to most wholesalers out there, I'm sure, in terms of how they got their jobs. Sounds very familiar to all the processes that I had gone through. So yes, you're, you're definitely right in that. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it was. Um, and I had to take the uh, personalysis test. 
which which came back higher with reservations. So that was interesting. Really? Do they tell you more <laughs> about that, or is there any was there any debrief oh, yeah. on what that meant? I had the whole report, but yeah, it it it. Um, uh, I don't recall the nuance of why the reservations, but fortunately, uh, the higher was the uh, more important finding versus the reservations piece. So for today's episode, we'll take a maybe a little bit of a different approach than I may have for regular episodes where we're going to talk maybe more about the common traits and aspects of a wholesaler's life that I think not only have you shared with the audience in some best practice and advices on your blog, but also some that you feel are particularly impactful for your life and the way that you are as a wholesaler. So I'll walk through those in no particular order, and then we'll talk through them in more detail. But those six are passion, rectitude, candor, urgency, word of honor, and last but not least, humor. So the first one we'll, we'll stick to is passion. Um, I wanted to you know, maybe get your thoughts. So how would you describe your passion when it comes to wholesaling? Yeah, so I, I just want to back up a hot second and just mention how I was forced to come up with that list. And I say forced, not because the list is incorrect, the list is quite correct, but what compelled me to get this synthesized down to those finite number of items. And what happened was I was asked to do a presentation uh, for a volunteer organization called Europe. And Europe basically takes um, inner city and disadvantaged young people. Uh, that otherwise would never have an opportunity to put on a suit and go into a Google, a Facebook, uh, a then Oppenheimer funds, et cetera, uh, and do internships. And I was asked to come in and make a presentation to them. And this is what they wanted to hear. Like what, what's most important to get ahead in a career. So I, I had to take a moment and think of, about what the distillation of all this time would be, career time would be into what ended up being 40 minutes worth of, of a talk. That's how we got there. So um, when you speak about passion, that's the one you just mentioned, correct? Yep. That's the first one yeah. on the list, passion. When you speak about passion, um, it's, it's a, it, passion's got an upside and passion's got a downside. Uh, and, and over the years that I, I've been in business, um, uh, I've been sometimes accused of um, being too passionate because that passion comes through as emotion and the emotion some, sometimes uh, gets misunderstood. Uh, you know, he, he's angry. No, he's passionate. How many wholesalers out there have been accused of that? I, I'll bet you, you there's some out there shaking their head right now. They're like, oh, I am passionate. Yeah, I've been accused of being angry. Or, or um, um, you know, he, he, he's, he's uh, wound up tight because he's, he's passionate. So I think passion has uh, extraordinary amounts of positive impact when channeled correctly. Uh, and if you can, now I can reflect back and go, if you can figure out how to kind of frequency modulate uh, the amount of passion that you put forward against um, um, how it is used productively in your practice. So as an example, um, let's say that there is uh, a certain um, uh, way of doing business within your firm uh, that just absolutely grates you the wrong way. Uh, there always is. And you are passionate about wanting to do it in a different way. You just, you're every pore in your body is like, I, it's gotta be done this way. It can't be done that way. But now you have a decision to make. And the decision is, is this the sword you're going to fall on? 
So there's the decision of, do I really want to fall on my sword here, even though my passion bubbleth over, or do I need to kind of bring that back, reel that in a little bit and let the passion kind of build under the surface? That's just one dimension of passion. Passion in how you approach the learning of your product, passion about how you learn the competitor's product, passion about how you approach centers of influence, passion about how you approach prospect, passion about how you interact with uh, your firm and, and the colleagues in your firm. I mean, there's all kinds of places that it displays itself. Uh, that was a very long answer to your question. The gears were spinning. I, I think the best way to describe it that you laid out was determining if it's a sword that you're willing to fall on. I just found that to be so relevant throughout the wholesaling ranks, especially when you have like a remote team. And if you're dialing in on most of your team calls, or maybe you don't get as much access to the home office as perhaps your internal partner does, it can, you can build up this reputation within your firm itself. If you kind of, if you continuously try to like make mountains out of a molehill and, and become like overly passionate or focused on something that may or may not change uh, in that realm. And that, that, that's a beautiful example right there because you can get let. So at one point in my career, I was labeled as a whiner and I've written about this. This is not a secret. And, and the reason I was uh, labeled as a whiner was because my passion was just, you know, it was constantly on display. We shouldn't do it that way. We should do it this way. It shouldn't read that way. It should read this way. No, that seminar sucks. No, compliance shouldn't have. If you're not careful, <laughs> passion starts to display itself in whining. And if you get if you get labeled as a whiner um, and you don't have the production to go with your whining, you can get sideways real fast. Yes, I would. I'm going to bold highlight whatever emphasis, you know, item we want to put on it. The you have a lot more leeway and flexibility when your results are there and when you're atop the sales ranking. And if you're not, buyer beware or just be, you know, just perception it, perception really matters. And if you're not at the top of that sales list, it's just it's just one aspect to be considerate for. It doesn't mean that anybody is more right or wrong than anyone else at the firm, but you know, the person that's put up the best numbers five years in a row might be taken a little bit more seriously than someone who's been middle of the pack. Correct. I had production. a I, no, no, keep going. No, I was just gonna say pr production forgives a lot of sins. Uh, yep. Just like in sports, winning hides a lot of other other faults uh, on your team's roster. But if you can get it done, you know, people can overlook that. I had a, a, a funny example of that, not as not as an external, but when I was an in, internal, I using your term, I, I have a passion, I think for like sales training, like I, I, I enjoy the ex experience of coaching people, seeing them gain a, a skill set or confidence in messaging and in sales and feeling like really confident with their pitch. And at the firm I was working at, we had a very stale, boring, completely useless sales training session. And I, you know, I, I spent hours trying to build, here's why we can make this better. Here's how we can make this better. And I was like debating internally, should I bring this up to the manager? And after obsessing and observing, kind of just reading the room, I was like, this is going to go absolutely nowhere. And even if it is the best training curriculum ever, no one's going to give a shit. So I kind of just stashed that one away and just let it kind of roll. But I didn't, I didn't choose to like unleash something that I felt passionate about in that environment, just because I didn't think it would really go anywhere. And who cares if I could come up with a better idea for sales training? I'm not a manager, so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. If you can figure out a way, especially earlier in your career, to 
understand where to take your shots, uh, where to add impactful feedback at the right time uh, and do it in the right way. Let your passion be a positive versus a deterrent. Definitely. Definitely. So our second one here is rectitude. And I'm going to be completely honest with you and the audience. I had to go back and just quickly get a definition for this one of all you those thought on it the was list. Something that, you thought it was something that hurt, didn't you? <laughs> not, not as much. It was just more like, let me just go back and double check so that I have this accurately. So by the book, that definition is morally correct behavior or thinking and righteousness. So throughout the walks of life as a wholesaler, where do you see, what situations and experiences do you think this applies most in the job? You know, when you talk about righteousness and you talk about morally correct, maybe those are more high-minded applications of rectitude that I think about. They're important. I mean, obviously, they're very important. But the, when I think about rectitude or when I mention rectitude, it, it, it's doing the right thing. It's like do it, doing the right thing even when nobody's watching. That, that becomes really, really important. And so where does that manifest itself? Yeah, I bet you if you took a moment to think about it, you could come up with a number of different scenarios. I mean, you go in to see the top producing financial advisor, a fill-in-the-blank broker dealer, and you figure out a way to make a hundred dollar rule not a hundred dollar rule. Right. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, uh, dancing around it. Yeah, or you um uh, you figure out a way to give to a charity organization that's important to the financial advisor to curry favor with them, but you're forced to do so in some fashion or way that, that otherwise, I won't say compromises your rectitude, but it certainly questions it. You know, I, I, I've had an expression for years called the dirty underbelly of wholesaling. And, and this is where this fits in. And, and look, Dan, it may not be as prevalent today. And, and I can't tell you I know chapter and verse of what happens in the dark crevices of wholesaling today. But I certainly can tell you that back when I was in management and back when I was a wholesaler, um, uh, was it common Eh, no, that would be disingenuous to a whole host of folks. But did it happen? Yeah. I mean, there's guys, there's brokers that, there's a broker that, that lost his license. I've written about him too. There's a broker that lost his license because um, he sent bills to wholesalers for seminar participation, for seminars that never happened. So you'd get a bill as a wholesaler for a hundred bucks and you'd send him the reimbursement for that event for a hundred bucks. And he pocketed the money. Now this was in a day before, you know, the check has to be made out to the broker dealer or you have to pay by credit card or whatever those kind of guard walls that are up now that protect against those such things. But he did that for like 14 different mutual fund companies for one event. So I imagine for, over the course of time too, how many years, right? And that's 1400 bucks a year, 14 firms, hundred bucks. I mean, I mean, is that really worth it though? Of course it's not worth it. I mean, 
ultimately he got fired for a different reason, which isn't appropriate for discussion on this podcast, but he did get disbarred. So if you just use that as, as, as a example of rectitude, you know, does that mean, do you do the right thing? I mean, if I bring that fast forward, the story that I always told uh, from the platform when I was doing uh, presentations around the country, when we got to rectitude, rectitude was, was uh, exemplified by when I was uh, a senior leader uh, at our firm that sold fixed annuities, uh, I had um, uh, folks lining up outside my door to tell me that there was some programming that went awry inside of the uh, code that was written for the contracts for fixed annuities and the renewal rates were credited incorrectly. That happens all the time. I mean, <laughs> it happens. So what do you do, right? Well, the answer was easy. Key accounts calls all the most important VIPs at the accounts. Wholesalers externally call their most important clients. Wholesalers internally call everybody else. You do a written communication. You do voicemail communication. You ask for forgiveness. Mia culpa's everywhere. And people come and figure out that you had uh, a good forthright attitude and they forgive you. Okay, well, that wasn't where rectitude came in. Rectitude came in when those same people assemble outside your door eight weeks later to tell you the fix they put in didn't work. And all of those contracts were incorrectly credited again. Oof. Oof is right. Yeah. Because this is where rectitude comes in. So it could be that since clients don't read their statements, allegedly, we could just slide by with that correction. Or it could be we could just do it quietly. And the right answer was, no, we just have to go through the same song and dance all over again. Everybody call, everybody's supposed to call, everybody email, everybody's supposed to email, take our lumps and ask for forgiveness. That's the best example I have of rectitude. You know what the right thing to do is. And sometimes we choose not to do the right thing, even though we know, we know what the right thing to do is. Does that make right. sense? Make complete sense. Yeah. I, I think everybody who's been in the role before has experienced that where they can feel it's like, should I be, like, should I be doing this? Like, should I really be doing this? And, and then on the flip side, like you just described in that story, knowing that what, like, what's the, what's the best, most right way to respond to this and just do what's do what is best for protecting our firm and ensuring that like we protect our clients and just give them the most transparent, accurate information instead of just swiping it under the rug and ignoring it. So definitely, definitely a good example there. The only one that can, figure out if it's right, aside from what you know to be true when it's a compliance type issue, especially. But the only one that can figure out if it's right is you. There's, there's, <laughs> it's, it, it's you and your conscience and, and, and where your guardrails are for doing the right thing. But that's what rectitude is. That makes an easy transition into the third one, which is candor. So open, honest, and frank. Can you share any experiences in, throughout your career where that type of you know, openness and honesty is, is really applied, or would you maybe define it any differently? No, I mean, I, I mean, how you began to describe it is, is fine. I had an interesting um, epiphany when I began my journey in senior management. So the, the, the pathway for folks that don't know, and I, most people wouldn't know, that uh, I started out as a national sales manager. And two years later, I was president of a distributor. And what, what happened was uh, a number of events with people that departed, opportunities that became mine, 
uh, alliances that I had built that come to fruition within the firm. But one thing that was kind of weirdly uh, successful, I say weirdly successful because it's not a strategy that I would employ. I was actually at a firm that I, I really wasn't very happy at. Um, and because I really wasn't very happy at it, I found myself to be a little more liberal uh, in my commentary. Um, so picture a board room. Uh, this is just one example. Picture a boardroom where uh, the head of product is at the table, the CEO is at the table, the head of marketing is at the table, um, and these different departments are giving a readout to the CEO. It's a quarterly readout of the, you know, the, the business yep, as it update. stands. Sure. And, and you know, the, the, the product guy is, is, is going on with his actuary about, you know, what the, uh, what the attractiveness is of the product and how these tweaks are going to be made and what the profitability on it will be. And I just looked at the CEO and I said, this product sucks and I would never sell it to my mother. And, and that came from a place of, I don't really care what happens as a result of that comment. It came from like the wrong place. It came from, you know, this, this, this brash place of, if you don't like what I said, fire me. But an interesting thing happened. The learning was when I did that, there was an appreciation for the, for the candor. Now, let's be super clear. Am I recommending that wholesalers start to pop off to CEOs about things they don't like? Yeah, that's probably a bad strategy. Bad strategy, but, yeah. Right. But is there room to... Look, when something comes down the pike from your boss, you have a choice to fall in line. You have a choice to maybe poke back with some easy commentary. Or you have a choice to say, you know, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really love to give you some constructive feedback about what I'm thinking about how that applies to the firm, how that applies to our clients, how, how that applies to my colleagues. So you, candor, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, I'm going to say what I want to say because I don't care if you fire me. That is at the extreme and the not recommended approach. But the 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 sucking it up and 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 just kind of dealing with it and falling in line may not be the right approach either. Funny, it goes back to figuring out where to fall on your sword. <laughs> yeah, it does. It all it all comes back to that. That might be the recurring theme. Maybe that'll be the episode title. Who knows? Well, it it, it perhaps. But but the 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 notion is um, there is some goodness that can come out of being more forthright from being more brave from being more candid in the right manner in the right setting with the right folks at the right time you've been in a national sales meeting i'm talking to listeners as well you've been in a national sales meeting where that girl or that guy is always the one that puts their hand up and they start prattling on about I don't know what, and the person on the podium is like, inside in their brain because I've been that guy. They're thinking, could you just not do that right now? But that person's going to say what they're going to say, and they say it a lot, and they say it frequently. That gives me that just like brings a flood of memories from say like national sales meetings or national sales calls where 
that one person just says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, and you can hear a collective just like, uh, from the entire wholesaling team and the force that's out there. It's just like, not now, not at this moment of the call. We were like just about to move on. And then someone brings their opinion or thought and it's not well vetted. It's, it, it's not constructive. So there you go. Glad, glad so you what, can get some good examples. What you said right there, not well vetted, not well constructed. So if it's well vetted and it's well constructed and well timed, give it. It would actually be appreciated. Your boss might actually appreciate a thoughtful, well-constructed, well-timed piece of input that helps them better understand how to do their job more successfully, how the firm can be more successful distributing the product that you distribute. Popping off, not appreciated. Yeah. And and I'm wondering if it's maybe just characteristics of wholesalers. We, I think we like to be off the, you know, off the cuff and just rely on our thoughts and, and opinions. But when it comes to that type of feedback or honesty and candor, it's, it's people benefit from presenting it. And here's, I spoke to five advisors that represent 45% of my territory or 50% of my territory. After asking this question, they provide me with this feedback. Therefore, based on this discussion, I wanted to relay, relay that to management for consideration because it's 50% of my my territory provided this feedback. It's like, use that approach versus just saying, I don't know, I don't think this is going to work. The market's not, doesn't have an appetite for it. You know, it's just people repeatedly, repeatedly do that. Right. This sucks. Here's why. So the next one here is urgency. Um, I, I like this one for, for two reasons. The first one, obviously, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's important, but then on your, in this particular blog that you put together, you had two different videos. The first one that talks about why urgency is important. And then the second one is about why not everything is urgent. So maybe can you just talk us through that for anyone that hasn't seen the videos yet? How does one really master the approach when it comes to urgency in the job? The answer that I want to share with you is is somewhat selfish in nature in that um, I am like ridiculously anally urgent. And the reason I'm anally urgent is somewhat self-serving. It's self-serving because I don't want it on my to-do list. So if it's easier, and it generally is, to just get it done right now, I will just do it because I don't, I don't want it spinning around up here, right? And if you think about it, think about anything that you have to do in your life tomorrow or the next day, or it's due in a week. Think about anything, Dan, that is coming up in your life that you know has a due date, a timestamp on it, right? Until it's done, it's going to occupy some little space in your brain. Is that a fair statement? Very fair. And so depending on if it's super large or super small, it's just going to keep spinning around, taking up either small amounts or larger amounts of space in your head. Well, why carry that around with you? Why keep replaying that same track in your head? You know, I'll use something just, you know, mundane. I have to go to the dry cleaner. I have to go to the dry cleaner. I can't forget to go to the dry cleaner. I'm leaving on a trip. I got to go to the dry cleaner. And you put that off for day two, day three, day four, all kinds of reasons come up. Again, mundane example, but it can have to do with, you know, something that the boss has asked you to do. We'd like to see your business plan. We'd like you to give us your top 500 advisors. Uh, we'd like to uh, take a look at your marketing plan, whatever the thing is, right? The more you put it off, the more space it builds in your brain. And potentially for some wholesalers, it also feeds anxiety. Because depending on what the it is, 
if it is, uh, for some wholesalers, it just builds anxiety, period, end of report, right? I have to carry this thing around, hence it is anxiety-inducing. Right, yeah. For other wholesalers, it depends on the enormity of the thing, if it's going to induce any sort of anxiety. So that's why I selfishly try to do everything I can as soon as I can. Like, if you sent me an email to inquire about coaching services, I have a template that I will immediately pull up. I will have an answer back to you about how to get a 20-minute call scheduled with me. I'll have that back to you within minutes of receiving your email. I don't want it in my inbox. I don't want to have to think about it. The template is built. All I have to do is pull it up, cut, paste, and send it. It takes me about 30 seconds. It's just done. It's off, off my plate, right? But then you brought up the other notion of, um, everything is not urgent. And, and the story behind that is um, Oppenheimer Funds at the time sent a representative from the marketing company that they had hired. So this was on the road to building, I don't know if you remember the tagline, the right way to invest. Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Before and in the development of the right way to invest, they sent out marketing guys and girls from an ad agency across the country. And one of them landed in my passenger seat. And at the time, it was in that day and age where it wasn't smartphones. He had a pager. And his pager kept going off and going off and going off. And I'm like, dude, aren't you going to answer that? And he looked at me and he said, everything is urgent. Therefore, nothing is urgent. And that kind of stuck with me because if you take it in the literal sense, it kind of unfurls everything I just said about urgency, but I don't take it in the literal sense. I take it in the sense of you have to kind of measure what is truly urgent. And I think folks in their brain can see the diagrams that have been built around, you know, it's high importance, it's high urgency. Okay, well, I should definitely do that. But so there's, there's that framework that has great relevance. Everything is not urgent. It doesn't all need to be done right now. Your boss doesn't necessarily have to act on everything as soon as you give it to them. You know, so those, those, that is a juxtaposition of two thoughts. Urgency is important, but everything is not urgent. Does that have any semblance of, of making sense at all? It, may, it makes complete sense to me, hopefully to, to some folks that are in the audience listening or tuning in, maybe some drive time. Like I'm, I'm thinking as the direct application is, let's say it's five, let's say you had a, a full day of meetings. It's, it's 5 PM and you've got six things in your, in your inbox. Like you, you briefly scan through and it's like, okay, uh, there's, there's nothing that if it's not responded to tonight is going to impact my business or the quality of service that I provide to the advisors I'm working with. If you in your own mind are time managed, organized, you can say, okay, I just worked a full day. It's 530. I need to go meet someone for like dinner or drinks. I'm going to get to that tomorrow. Like I don't have to respond to this right now, but there is on the flip side of that. It's that, it's that sense of urgency. Like I, I get this done because it's, it's going to have to get done anyway. So if I can do it now, I might as well. Like the flip side of that would be an email that you could respond to in 15 seconds during the middle of the day, if you can get to that, you ought to get to that instead of pushing it to the next day. And the other rabbit hole that this takes us down that we're not going to go down now is, you know, when people ask me, what are the, the two greatest attributes of the greatest wholesalers? It's process and branding, process and branding, process and branding, process and branding. So in process, 
if you had your processes set up, then you could actually attack some of those emails in your inbox in the 15 seconds that you allude to. And then it's just a question of pulling up your phone and hitting your template and going, okay, that's going to get that response for now. Even if the response says, got your email, I'm definitely going to respond to you. I'll hit you up before seven o'clock tomorrow at AM and you get on with your day. So you can at least offload that out of your brain and not carry that piece around with you for the balance of the night, if that, if that resonates. Yeah. Uh, a quick question. So, so for, for you, for Rob Shore, you talk about urgency. How do you manage your checklist? Are you like, do you have an app? Do you, are you paper and pen kind of person? How do you, when you go through your mental checklist, is it just like you operate and get it done? Or do you start your day every day, like writing things down? I always find that interesting because people have different processes on their own. Yeah, I, w- I will make lists, but I'm also a, a strong uh, proponent of calendar blocking. Now, you can't put everything on your calendar because not every little tiny thing needs to be on the calendar. But um, I, will, I will calendar block a whole host of things to make sure that I'm able to um, know where they're going to fit into the next day or, or the next week. Uh, sometimes, the, and it's not just, you know, join a podcast with Dan. It could be, uh, you know, get to CBS and, and pick this up or take my wife to this or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, I will make, I will make lists uh, in longhand, but I also use apps. So I'm a bad person to ask because I, it's no yeah, one. I, I feel like I'm the same way because I've, I've, I've acknowledged that setting up a task on whether it's Gmail, whatever is super, it's a quick and efficient way. But for some reason, just I process it better when I take a moment to like look two, three weeks ahead, block off the time physically on a piece of paper. Like I have one yeah. of the, one of those black calendars. I think you can get it at CVS. So I try to get that each calendar year, which has the yeah. hour block off. And yeah. now I don't follow it one, you know, hundred percent perfectly all the time, but I, on Sunday afternoons, usually I'll just look at that and just say, okay, broadly speaking, like here are my anchor tasks for the week and I'll just go from there. So all right, uh, continuing on our list here, we, we've made it through four. So we're, we're now on to word of honor. So I, I think this one is, is great for a whole host of reasons. But um, again, why don't, why don't you describe in your view where this most applies in the profession? This is everything. The, this, this could have been and should have been perhaps at the top of the list. Do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. Do what you say you're going to do what you're going to do when you say you're going to do it quick think about the last time somebody lets you down on that statement it probably was within the last 24 48 72 hours because it happens to us constantly and with wholesalers it's generally not malicious it's not like We have an industry of flakes. We have an industry of super busy people. And a lot of times the overcommitment of their time is what causes this breakdown and do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And I think one of the most impactful places that it happens is when you're dealing with an advisor and you say, all right, that was a great a great appointment. I certainly appreciate your time. You've given me a laundry list of things to do. I'm going to make sure that I do them. And this is where things can perhaps come off of the track. I'll have all this information back to you by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Now you said that in the heat of the battle, you said that to impress the crap out of them. 
You said that to make sure that you were giving the appearance, and we hope it's true, that you really have your shit together. Right. Like, then, I'm going to go home tonight, and the only thing I'm thinking about is getting my responses back to you in the quickest time possible. If that's what was going through your head, fine. You made that commitment. 10 o'clock rolls around, and there's nothing. 11 o'clock rolls around, nothing. 12 o'clock rolls around, nothing. That day goes by. It's not there. There could be good reasons for it. It could be that the analysis that you want done needed to be done by Jill and Jill's out of the office. Or it could be that the system that generates that particular bit of insight is down and we can't generate that particular bit of insight. The problem is oftentimes you're not allowing yourself the opportunity to really shine in the do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it category because you, you get to, you get to play with both of those dials do what you what you say when you say you have the opportunity actually to create an environment where you always over deliver give me 36 hours and i'll have this information back to you and it lands on your desk in 12. I mean, per, it's momentary and by the way i realize that the advisor is not sitting there waiting with bated breath for your information. They're not looking at their watch going, that son of a bitch said it would be here by 10 and it's 10.01 and it's not here. That's not the point. It is the notion that you can deliver on what you say, when you say, with consistency. And if there's any one tenant that I uh, pride myself on and I had hoped to instill in everyone that worked in my organization. It was definitely this one. You have to admit in, the, in this day and age, when somebody does exactly what they say, when they said it, sadly, it just becomes impressive. I say sadly, because it shouldn't have to be that way. But is that uh, true? I'm, I'm laughing right along with you because it, particularly in this day and age when digital communication reigns supreme and you you have everyone's everyone's always busy and everyone can always in theory be occupied. You're right. I am blown away at the response that I have, even when when someone does exactly what you're describing, which is just to under promise, over deliver. I feel like that's a foundational aspect of like successful sales folk. It's just under promise, over deliver. And if we're talking about the time and responsiveness, that is the, that's the difference. You see you see something. It's like oh, this person said they'd get it to me on Friday and. Here it is, my inbox Thursday afternoon. That's awesome. You feel like so much better, not feeling better, but you have, there's more credibility built and you're, you're simply impressed. It's like, we're, it's sad that that is a wow factor in today's business environment. That point right there, you know, when, when, when uh, I do talks, <laughs> I talk about how low the bar is set today. So low. The bar, <laughs> the bar to impress is set ridiculously low. I mean, we're yeah. not we're 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 not talking. I mean, it's it. I, I I'm trying to find the right word pictures to offer to the audience, but but you know, we're talking six inches off the ground. If that you get over that bar, you've impressed somebody. Really, is that what we have come down to? Well, in this particular category, I believe we actually have. So if you can take something as small as that and use it as a way to infinitely impress a client, a prospect, a center of influence, your boss, colleagues at the firm, why would you not take it? Yeah. Free advice, free advice and uh, insights here for everyone listening in. But yeah, you're right. Sad, sad world that the bar is that low. But like you said, if it's six inches and you can jump 12 inches, people are going to be pretty, pretty impressed. So that's the bar. Yep. 
moving on to the last one. So obviously the most lighthearted in nature, but this is, this is humor. So what do you think that's the best way? Or how do you think you can best incorporate humor into the job? Is it more day to day? Is it more in how you interact with people? What do you think in that regard? Yeah, so, um, there's a host of comedians that you can listen to uh, about what their, say, elementary school, junior high, high school experience was. And a whole host of them will tell you that one of the reasons they didn't get beat up is because they could make people laugh. <laughs> and the, 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 the news here about humor is, you know, this is not your ability to tell backslapping jokes. It is your ability, if you have it, to uh, bring lightheartedness and humor into your day to be able to make somebody laugh, smile, to, to, to infuse, um, uh, levity into situations I have found has always been super successful. Some folks are hardwired for it and some folks aren't hardwired for it. And I don't know how to tell those that aren't hardwired for it how to get hardwired for it. I don't even know if there is a way to do it. I'm not sci a scientist in that way. But if you have a, 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 um, a proclivity to make people lighten up through your humor, uh, I can't emphasize enough the power of that in business. Yes, it has to be well-placed. No, you can't make awkward comments at the wrong time. Can it bite you in the ass if you're trying to make a joke when it is ill-timed and ill-placed? Yeah, it'll bite you in the ass. But if you find, you know, if, if, if you find the right uh, uh, maturation of your humor and inject it in the right places, then yeah, it has application across your business. It does. I'll, I'm going to give a shout out to two folks that were on the sales desk with me, which obviously in a sales desk, you get, you know, you're, you're dealing with large groups of people. You're always spending multiple hours, days on, on days end. So you have to, you have to have the personalities to keep that energy up. But two folks that I just thought were naturally funny and just you like to be around because they made you laugh. Uh, Matt Gibbons, I think he's out in St. Louis now. And Joe Gear, guy down in Texas. But they are two of those people whose personalities are just, they're, they're funny and they're great professionals as well. But you just enjoyed being around them because they had this innate ability to like make you laugh or, or talk about something happening during the job that can bring levity to the situation and maybe be different than how everyone else would operate in, in a room. So definitely a you, great skill. And what you said right there, there were, there were true professionals that also found humor. So, you know, it's important. And I, I know this audience appreciates the fact it's not about being a clown. This isn't class clown type stuff. It's, it's, it's be, you've articulated it quite well. It's just finding the humor, <laughs> finding the absurd, being able to extricate a laugh, help people lighten their day. It's super powerful. It is. It definitely is. I've, you know what's I, I've noticed too on my own without having as many in-person meetings. I, I don't I don't think anyone would describe me as like a naturally funny person, probably like the opposite, more like serious and formal, like as part of my branding, et cetera. But um I've had when you're doing like Zooms and everything, it's almost like this is either going to be a tragically boring and un, un, unentertaining call. Or you can try to, in some way, make some kind of like lighthearted joke, or be even maybe even be more casual in nature and bring up something that's happening outside of the working realm, just to just to break the ice in some way when you're not interacting face to face with people as much, or you're hosting something facilitated via Zoom. Laughter is super powerful medicine, and we can all use a little a little prescription of that today. 
1000%. So we're going to go into a bonus topic now, which is one that I really wanted to, to chat about just for a, a dozen reasons, but we'll lay it out there. And thankfully, we don't have to worry about any editing or filtering on this podcast. But that subject is fuck you money, which I know you've written about, you've blogged about. It's something that you have certainly shared. And there's no surprise that the wholesaling career, career path is a lucrative one. And that comes with it a host of managing money and money skill sets. But um, you know, you did a you did post a video about amassing enough money to basically say fuck you at any time. So why do you say that? Why did you decide to put out some content or share that idea with the wholesaling community? 30 plus years ago, 40 plus years ago, I heard a boss say that to me. Um, and it it stuck with me. Um, and if you think about especially if you're, you're a younger <clears throat> member of the distribution community, if you, if you think about uh, the m- amount of money that you either are making presently or hope to make, and you think about all the things you want to be able to do with that money for yourself, for your family, tangible things that you want to have, things that maybe you couldn't afford when you were younger that now, hot damn, I can... I can afford this. I can now buy a better one of those. It all starts to, uh, uh, you know, in that realm. I don't know if you ever read the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah, I have. Um, yep. It, it starts to feel in the in the attitude around money. It starts to feel a little bit like that. You know, do you have to drive an '86 Honda today? No, not necessarily. But you don't necessarily either have to upgrade your lease every two years to have the hottest BMW. That doesn't have to happen either. Somewhere in between might be the better place. By having that mindset, it does allow you to amass more money. And by amassing more money and taking your own advice that you give to clients in seminars, which is to be properly diversified, allocated, take the right amount of risk at the right amount of time in your life, you will build a substantial nest egg because you're getting paid 200, 300, 500, 700, a million two a year. It's not going to take very long. And then you will have money to be able to make decisions in your life that aren't as influenced by well, I can't do, I can't, I just, I can't leave. I've got too many financial responsibilities to make that decision, right? I can't take that job that pays 400, leave a job paying 700 because I need every dollar of that 700. I can't afford to leave corporate America and go into entrepreneurial America because I need every dollar. I can't take that risk of leaving entre- or leaving a corporate America because you know, I'm not going to, I can't pay for my own health care and I, I can't pay for my own administrative duties. And I, I just, I have to be able to earn that check from, from the man. Um, it's very, it's, it sets you up with a very different mindset when you have amassed enough money to where you can either, uh, uh, temporarily say you want to take a couple years off or permanently just say, you know what? I'm not happy with the firm. I'm not happy with the career. I'm not happy with insert unhappiness that you're unhappy about here. Fuck you. So trying to put some numbers to it, because I can imagine that we've got 
those that are listening probably are some people are just like, yes, like I get it. I'm trying to run this rat race so I can get out earlier or yeah, here's the things that are really bothering me. So I don't know if there, I don't know if there's any way to ever put a specific number to it where you'd say like, this is what I would consider to be that degree of fuck you money that gives me the flexibility or freedom to do whatever I want. Maybe it's not, a, maybe it's not a specific number, but either, either quantifying that or maybe just walking through a sample approach. I would love to hear that because I think a lot of times wholesalers will chat about these things and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss them, but then no one will put pen to paper and say, if I can make, or if I can save $250,000, I think that gives me the freedom to switch roles or that gives me freedom to leave this firm. Like, what do you think that number would be? It's, it's really hard to cite a number. And are we talking about having enough money just to be able to afford to quit job one and go explore alternatives, feeling pretty good that you'll get hired and just having enough money to get through that intermediate period? Or are we talking about financial freedom? Because those are two very different concepts. Why I mean, don't, for the exercise, why don't, what, do you, what do you think the first number would be to just kind of pivot and the second I one to be? Yeah, I can't, I can't know what the pivot number is because I have no idea what your expenses are and I have no idea you know, what your standard of living is. So I'd be ill-equipped to, to state that. I will give you uh, a different way, at least I found it to be different and I just found it a few years ago, um, a different way to assess um, what your ultimate savings leads to in terms of having money to actually then give give working give career the finger if you want to and that's assessing it in terms of um what i'll just call the x factor so you say to yourself all right when i look at everything and how i would want to set up my life let's say i'm 50 years old and I, i'm thinking that um I can actually, you know, you start to look at yourself in the mirror and talk to your spouse or your significant other and go, you know, I, I can actually do this at 55. I could actually do this. And here's the way I'm thinking about it. Um, on, on, a, on, a, on a year where we're being particularly frisky, we spend $250,000. Well, $250,000 to last for 10 years is 2.5 million. To last for 20 years is 5 million. To last for 30 years is don't make me do the math 7.5 million, right? I'm glad you're providing the numbers. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a big math guy. So I'm glad that you brought all those numbers to the forefront. Right. So that's what the X factor would be. So if you look at your portfolio at a certain point in time and go, I've got 30 X. I mean, if you're 60 years old and you've got 30 X, meaning you've got 30 times $250,000 because you decided you're going to live on $250,000, you're done. So, I mean, that to me is just plain simple math. And that has to account for everything. I mean, it has to account for medical expenses that are unforeseen until you get to Medicare. And then with Medicare, it has to account for, you know, what isn't paid by. I mean, we're talking about a different phase of life than a whole host of your listeners are in. Yeah. But, 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 but when you're thinking about fuck you money, Yes, you can think about it in terms of enough saved up to bridge. A, so I'll give you a perfect case. I was dealing with a wholesaler who I had just come off the desk. I coached them for a number of years. Uh, they had gone through a few different firms and at, at a pretty young age, like I don't, I, I don't even know like today, I'm guessing 
he's early 40s. I don't actually know his true age. I'd have to go back and look at my records. But let's say he's early 40s. Um, he, he decided to leave the wholesaling gig behind and has started his own entrepreneurial venture. And when I spoke to him about it not very long ago, he's like, well, I had enough fuck you money to do it. So I decided to do it. So right there is the uh, example of what your listener is probably going to be faced with more frequently than not. And that is, I cannot afford right now to make any gap in my employment, but I'm not going to have this happen to me again. So I'm going to look at both what's coming in and what's going out and make sure I'm saving a bunch and investing wisely. So when the next time this comes up five years down the road, I can say this job sucks, fuck you. And I'm just going to go and it's going to take me two years. I don't care if it takes two years. I've got two years of wherewithal saved up. Does that make sense? 1000%. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm just thinking back to all of the times you're either at a, a sales meeting or just on the road with your coworkers getting together and just maybe have a few drinks and shooting the shit and you, these topics come up and What's fascinating to me is that there seems to be within most wholesale organizations, this separation of people that are on that path and they fully understand that. And they're like, well, I'm blessed to be in this lucrative career. I've got a fairly low cost of living. Even this one guy at a firm I used to work at, he was down in Texas. He was like, I think the biggest asset I have is this like 20 year old car that I've been able to rack up IRS mileage from because it's paid itself 15 times over from an investment standpoint since I've had it. But people that manage their lifestyle, budget correctly, and maybe have either more confidence or runway with the career path and are totally satisfied. Um, then there's people that are looking to get out and they know that I can make a bunch of money and I'll, I'll transition, just like the example that you had just used. Um, but then you have these other people that also you can just kind of pick up. I don't think they yet understand how to make that connection or how to align their income with what their ideal working environment is or career path. And they sometimes struggle. So hopefully those stories and this and talking about this subjects can maybe help out with that or just get give people a better understanding of like defining that and telling telling them utilize the income that you're using to your advantage, whatever that may be. Maybe it's an entrepreneurial effort. Maybe it's to be able to live uh, on your own, set aside a year worth of expenses, and then travel more. Like whatever that may be, who knows what that is? But it's great to I, I appreciate that you share that mindset because. It's not often that people are openly discussing the lucrative nature of the industry and with it comes blessings and also maybe curses too. So all, I think it's, it's, I think it's engaging to discuss. I, I, um, I, I promise the listener that if you've not experienced even the smaller victories, important victories, but smaller victories of say paying off credit cards, take that feeling of paying off a credit card or paying off a student loan, take that, that small victory and multiply it to a, a life-changing magnitude when you can actually look at those that are important in your life and go, yeah, I don't have to work anymore. So you know, that you can start to achieve it in the small run. I love your example of, uh, you know, I'm going to take two years off and I'm going to travel and I'll come back to this career whatever that means in two years, but I don't have to stress about it because I've saved appropriately. I've taken care of my money appropriately. I've managed my expenses appropriately. Anyway, not to beat a dead horse, but, but 
Um, I would certainly link the millionaire next door in the show notes. Uh, yeah, there's probably totally. a whole host of folks that haven't read it. Don't understand what it is. Doesn't make sense to them. Um, hopefully it'll, it'll give you some context. Um, arguably that author takes the examples to a significant degree. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of driving 20 year old cars. Yeah, um, same. I know there's always right? a degree. You have to always have a level of perspective when you either read those books, like the millionaire next door is a great example. I don't know if you've like the fire community, financial independence, retire early. Like they, there's like a subset of that community that loves to be like extremely low cost of living sacrifice at all costs. And I'm like, well, that kind of sounds like it sucks. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to live in a nice apartment. I'm going to afford a fun lifestyle and do it in a way that kind of is, is well balanced and not like super extreme on frivolous versus frugal. But here's the thing. You get paid enough freaking money in this profession. You can do both. You can. Yeah. That's no one. Not many people are struggling, if you will. So it's not like anyone here is starving. So, yep. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how that even like personalized, like like my you said student loan. So I I basically started in in wholesaling because I was like, well, I think I can make more money quicker in this career path. And my first, I think, five years was only focused on paying off my student debt. I think I had like $85,000 when I graduated from undergrad. And I was like, my mission is to only pay this off. Was able to, thank, thanks to some good years in the equity markets and some good sales on, on the teams that I was a part of. So very grateful for that. And spent definitely spent a couple of years though, doing some more luxury spending on things that I didn't do in the previous five years. But now I've more so neutralized and it's like, okay, let's level set this put some things on automated savings and just build a budget life, not a budget lifestyle, but create a, a lifestyle that's in line with like savings and allowing me to use money to my discretion. So yeah. all takes time and learning. And like you said, these are all blessings that we have because of the money that's available in the wholesaling industry. So hopefully people can understand that as we discuss it openly. Definitely. Well, Rob, this has been tons of fun before we send it off for the day. Is there anything else that you either want to highlight or maybe any ways that you'd like to share with the audience to find you or any articles to check out? I hope if they know where to the, find you. I was going to say, they well, probably I mean, know where to find you. That'd be the dumbest thing ever. If they... <laughs> no, actually, you know, what keeps you humble is when you say to someone, uh, have you ever heard of Wholesaler Masterminds? And you're like, no. So uh, for those that haven't, uh, wholesalermasterminds.com, you'll find uh, well north of 400 posts. You'll find 250 podcasts. You'll find videos. We have a YouTube channel. Um, Everything is there. You know, folks call me up, especially folks that maybe are newer to the profession and um, aren't quite ready for uh, uh, a, a formative coaching experience because that costs money. Um, I tell everybody the same thing. You can learn how to be a rock star wholesaler if you just commit to reading Wholesaler Masterminds and it's all free. Uh, if you want to engage with me, uh, my practice is now private coaching only. Uh, and you can reach out to me, Rob, at Wholesaler Masterminds. I'd be happy to uh, set up a 20-minute call. We can talk about what that would entail and how much that would cost. Uh, but if you don't want to do that, just go read, listen, watch. Uh, and I promise you there's things in there. And then I hope you'll be able to post the link um, that I believe the formal title was, what, 57 Things I Tell My 31-Year-Old Self? I think um, so. Yep, that's, that's the link there. That's that's the 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 post that was the foundation for this discussion. I hope you'll put that in the show notes as well. All right, Rob. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. 
Find us on Instagram at internal use only podcast or email us at internal use only podcast at gmail.com.